All right, well, we are doing a series. We're calling it Seven. Seven for the seven deadly sins, and then the corresponding seven life-giving virtues that go with each of those sins. And so, as you can see, today we are doing the, uh, the deadly sin of sloth. And so I thought, hey, why don't we just talk a little bit to start out today about sloths? Just learn a little bit about this mascot for this deadly sin. Uh, sloths are mammals classified in two families, the two-toed sloth and the three-toed sloth. They live in the tropical rainforest of South and Central America. They sleep between 10 to 20 hours a day, and they spend the rest of their time in trees foraging for food. Their main food source are leaves, which contain very few nutrients, and they don't digest very easily. Therefore, sloths have these special uh, stomachs with multiple compartments that break down tough leaves. As much as two-thirds of a sloth's body weight is made up by the contents of its stomach. And the digestive process can take a month or more to complete. Uh, Since leaves provide so little energy, sloths have very low metabolic rates and very low muscle mass. Their muscles only make up about 25 to 30 percent of their body weight. As a result, sloths move very slowly, and they only move when necessary. Um, Because they move so slowly, a single sloth may have several species of algae, fungi, moss, beetles, and cockroaches living in their fur. It's good to have company, I guess. Uh, Infant sloths will generally cling to their mother during the first few months of life, but occasionally they fall off. Now, don't worry, sloths have very sturdy bodies, and so usually the fall doesn't hurt them much. However, they often will die later because their mom is too uh, lethargic to uh, come down and help them out. (laughs) And and Garrett Garrett wanted me to mention that sloths have kind of low IQ, and so uh, sometimes they'll be holding onto a branch with one hand, and their other arm, and and then they'll grab another branch, and then... And then they'll grab, and they'll be like reaching like this, and eventually they'll grab their own arm, and then they'll just fall to the ground. So, anyway, in summary, sloths are a symbol for today's deadly sin because they spend most of their time focused on immediate physical gratification, like eating and sleeping. They're lethargic with very little energy or strength or intelligence. They provide a good environment for other nasty critters to live and grow. And sometimes they are so lethargic and concerned for their own security that they won't exert themselves to even save their children. Right? Now, I'm not trying to pick on sloths. You can put that down. We're going to all be feeling sorry for sloths here. I'm not trying to pick on them. The behavior of sloths is fine for sloths. That's how God made them to be. But it's not fine for humans. That's my point. I want us to see how these traits are bad when they characterize human beings. Uh, we, or at least I, I won't, I won't include you if you don't want to be included, but I tend to downplay the seriousness of sloth. I mean, after all, it's just laziness, right? I mean, in our culture, sloth and gluttony are so common that it almost seems funny to regard them as sins, right? We joke about those kind of sins. I joke about those kind of sins. And the first characteristic of a sloth doesn't even seem that bad. It sounds kind of nice, actually, just spending your time eating and sleeping. It's like, man, I I just want to go on vacation and do those things. But as a result, if you do those things long enough, you become increasingly lethargic. 
losing more and more of your physical and your spiritual strength and your intellectual sharpness. And in this lethargic state, other vices begin to grow in your life because you're not diligent about spotting and removing them. And finally, you become so weak and self-centered that you won't do hard things to help others, even those closest to you. And that's why God hates the sin of sloth and why it's so serious. Sloth is the avoidance of physical or spiritual work. It's laziness, lethargy, inertia. It's an unwillingness to exert energy to do what you ought to do. Sloth is the desire for ease and comfort at the expense of doing what you know is God's will. A slothful person is unwilling to do what God wants because of the effort it takes to do so. The sin of sloth slows down and even brings to a halt the energy that we need to expend in order to follow Christ. And at heart, slothful people are very selfish. They don't want to be bothered by the needs of others and the commands of God. They put their own comfort and security first, and they find it very difficult to do things which inconvenience them. And so let's take us, it's easy for me to just kind of quickly rattle off a bunch of things about sloth, but let's take a look at a story in the Bible that I think illustrates sloth and its effects. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, the capital city of the Ammonites. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba? the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift was sent from the king after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Why, or haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat, Among his master's servants, he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Now, this is a pretty well-known story. 
And it sounds like the deadly sin of lust, right? I mean, it's a paradigm example of the deadly sin of lust. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, certainly David did lust. He coveted Bathsheba when he saw her. But there's not really any evidence that he went out on his roof in order to be a peeping Tom, right? In order to look around, try to spot women bathing. And there's no clear indications in Scripture that David struggled habitually with lust, either before or after this story. He had multiple wives, but that was common for kings at this time. It was often done for political reasons. So I think that there is a deeper sin here that, in a sense, put David in a position where he lusted and then committed adultery and then tried to cover it up and then finally committed murder. And I don't think I'm eisegeting that. I don't think I'm putting that into the text. I think it's right here very clearly if we focus on the first two verses. Chapter 11, the very first two verses. Let me just say the author of Samuel is very subtle. He's a subtle guy. Both First and Second Samuel, it's the same book. We just divide it up because it's really long for us with our short attention spans, I guess. I don't know why we divide it up. It's just one book, and it's the same author, and he's very subtle. And so you have to read very carefully to kind of catch his main points. And these first two verses here are a good example of that. It says, in the spring, that's how it starts, in the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. First sentence. So you've got to know that the Israelites are in a war with the Ammonites. And in the winter, generally, armies wouldn't fight. There were a number of reasons for that. But in the spring, after the men would plant their crops, and then they'd have about three to four months before they, they, they reap what they planted. So now it's a good time for a king to lead out an army. And so the author says, in the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab. And then the last sentence of that verse, it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. And the Hebrew word there for remain, it means to sit or even more likely to recline. So David reclined in Jerusalem. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David reclined in Jerusalem. And then the, next, the very beginning of verse 2, it said, One evening David got up from his bed. And I always read that and thought, well, you know, like many of us, David tried to go to sleep, and you know, he's kind of tossing and turning. He couldn't fall asleep, so he got up and walked out on his palace to get a little fresh air. But that's not what the author is actually saying here. The word for evening in Hebrew, it means evening tide. We don't really have a word for this in English. But it's the time of the day when the sun is setting, and, and so you're transitioning from daytime to nighttime. So it's evening tide, just as the sun is setting. Just as the sun is setting, David gets up. And so the implication here is that David has been sleeping all afternoon. It was normal for Israelites to take a, what we might call a siesta in the afternoon. But it was not normal for them to sleep all afternoon. And so these verses show that David has become a very sedentary king. He ought to be going out to war with his army, but instead he reclines in Jerusalem and takes five-hour naps. And that's a problem because one of the main responsibilities for a king of Israel was to lead the Israelites into battle. 
When the enemies of the Israelites attacked, the king was supposed to lead them into battle. And so you can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, where it describes the responsibilities of a king. Even at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Israelites come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king. And they have wrong motives because they don't trust God. They want to trust in a human being. But they, they understand that the fundamental job of a king is to lead them into battle. They get that. And David has done a really good job of this his whole life. This is what his reputation is built on. He's known as a warrior king. But this spring, in this book, this spring, he decides not to go. Instead, he sends out his general with his best fighters and the rest of his army, and he stays home and reclines. Why? The author doesn't tell us explicitly, but again, he gives us some clues. If you look at the whole book in context, you see that when we're introduced to David, he's a shepherd boy. He's living out in the wilderness taking care of his father's sheep. And so often, he would have had to actually sleep out with the sheep, especially in the springtime. That's when the sheep generally would stay out all the time. And so the the shepherd would have to stay out and sleep with them and and stay alert. He would sleep, but he'd also have to stay alert to protect them from predators. And so David is spending his life, his early life, out in the open field, living with sheep, sleeping on the ground, protecting them from predators. Then David kills Goliath, becomes a warrior, begins to lead the Israelites out in battle until King Saul gets jealous. And so then, then he becomes a, an outlaw, and King Saul is chasing him. And so David has to live in the desert, hide from Saul, live in caves, again, out in, in, on the ground, And then finally Saul dies, and so there's a civil war between those who are loyal to Saul and those who are loyal to David. And that war goes on for a while. Finally, David's side wins, and David becomes king over all of Israel when he's 40 years old. He conquers, immediately conquers Jerusalem, makes that his new capital. Jerusalem's very central, and so it unites all of Israel. But the Philistines, when that happens, they immediately attack Israel because they don't want a strong Israelite nation. So the Philistines attack, David fights, and eventually the Israelites win. But it's a war, it's a long, it's, it's a long campaign. So eventually the Israelites push the Philistines back, but right after that the Moabites attack Israel. So David fights them. Then right after that the Arameans attack Israel. That's the people, people who live up in Syria. They attack, so David fights them. And now finally the Ammonites attack And so David sends out his army, but he stays home. So why didn't David go out to war? I think the simplest explanation is that he's tired. He's tired. For 35 years, he's been sleeping on the ground, fighting battles, trying to avoid being killed by enemies, and that's stressful. That's tiring. I mean, just read his Psalms. Many of David's Psalms are written when he's on the run from Saul or when he's in the midst of a battle. And he's, it, it, it will often start out with kind of this pattern. He'll start out being like, God, I'm in big trouble. Please help me. And then it'll end with him saying, God, I trust you. So he's wor- it's kind of, a, kind of a way for him to kind of, I don't know, deal with his issues by writing these psalms. So he's like, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Okay, God, I trust you. But you see that even for a great warrior, constantly being in battle, constantly being on the run, that's stressful. It's tiring. And so now he's in his mid to late 40s. We know that chronologically from other things. Mid to late 40s. He's ready for a break. I'm sure he feels like he's earned it. He has a beautiful palace in Jerusalem, but he probably feels like he hasn't had much time to enjoy it. He's made Israel more prosperous than ever before, but it's hard to enjoy the fruits of wealth when you're living on a battlefield. And so after a very comfortable winter, relaxing in his palace, the thought of living in a soldier's tent just doesn't appeal. 
When he was younger, hard living and fighting were all David knew. But now that he's tasted luxury, David decides he'd rather recline on a couch than fight an enemy. And on the surface, I think that sounds very reasonable. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on David here. I think that sounds reasonable. I think probably all of us would feel the same way in David's shoes, right? Rest and relaxation are healthy and they're they're essential. I'm not trying to to play down that. We need to rest. We need to relax sometimes. We need regular times when we recharge our batteries and we enjoy God's material blessings. But there's a real fine line between rest and sloth. When the desire for rest becomes an excuse not to do hard things that God has called us to do, rest then becomes sloth. It was good for David to rest during the winter. That was healthy. But when he then refused to go off to war in the spring, it showed that his rest had turned into sloth. David had lost the impetus to be a leader and to fight for God's people. Life at home was easier. There's no pressures. He sleeps all afternoon and then he wakes up for a delicious meal. It's like living on a cruise ship. And as a result, he slowly slips into a state of physical and spiritual lethargy. He stops disciplining himself. He stops being willing to do hard things. His number one focus becomes comfort and ease. And so instead of going off to war, he reclines at home. Instead of being productive in the afternoon, he sleeps. And instead of turning his eyes away from sexual temptation... He keeps looking. David allowed comfort and physical gratification to become his God and then to enslave him. He became addicted to easy living. And so when faced with temptation, he did not have the strength, the the spiritual strength to resist his physical desires. And that produced terrible consequences. And as a result, uh, his family and his kingdom are plagued by trouble and controversy for the rest of his life. A life that accomplished so much during its first 45 years or so, accomplished very little its final 25 years. But there's another character in this story uh, that the author is contrasting with David. And that character is Uriah. If David represents the deadly sin of sloth, Uriah represents the life-giving virtue of perseverance and faithfulness. Uriah, if you don't know much about him, he's one of David's mighty men. Uriah joined with David when David was in the wilderness hiding from Saul. The Bible says that a number of men gathered around David, and Uriah was one of them. So Uriah has been with David since David was an outlaw, since David was living in the desert, and Uriah has fought all of David's battles with him. So if David can make excuses for wanting to rest, Uriah could make the same excuses. He's been in battle too. And so when David brings him back and says, hey, go home, sleep with your wife, Uriah refuses. Why? I mean, I think most of us would be like, heck yeah, I'm going home, man. Because Uriah, he has a sense of solidarity with his soldiers, his fellow soldiers, and he has a sense of mission. He's on a mission. He knows what he's supposed to be doing if his, if his fellow soldiers can't go home, if they don't get to rest until they finish their mission, he's not going to rest until he finishes his mission. 
And so it says, instead, he slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's servants. In other words, he's guarding the palace with other fellow soldiers. If he can't sleep with fellow soldiers on the battlefield, he'll sleep with fellow soldiers while protecting the king in front of the palace. That is a serious commitment to mission. A serious commission to what you're supposed to be doing. He's got a comfy bed and a beautiful wife just around the corner. Literally just around the corner. But he knows it's not the right time to enjoy them. That there's a right time for that and a a wrong time. And now is not the time for that. He has work that needs to be done. And even when he's drunk, David gets him drunk, even when he's drunk, he's committed to his mission, which shows, I think, the strength of his character. And you may say, well... That's nice, but Uriah isn't really a life-giving model of this, of of the life-giving virtue, because he got murdered for it, right? Like, a lot of good that did him. But that's where the the New Testament comes in handy. It's nice that we have the New Testament. It comes in really handy here, because death is not the end of the story. And at the top of your worship folder here, if you have it, or if you've got our app and you want to look on there, I got the verse from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. Let's take a quick look at it. The writer of Hebrews says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So the audience here of Hebrews, this audience, they've been Christians for a while, and they've been persecuted. Earlier in the book, it says that they, that they were persecuted for their faith, that, that many of them lost their homes, they lost their possessions, some of them were thrown into prison, and yet they joyfully, the author says, they joyfully endured that because of their hope in Christ. But now it's been years 10, 20, we don't know exactly when this was written, but 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years after they first came to faith in Christ. And man, it's easy to endure persecution for a short time. It's even kind of exciting maybe. But man, to do that for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, that's hard. And these people are saying, wait a minute, where's Jesus? I thought he was coming back. This is tough. Maybe I should just become Jewish again. And then I won't be persecuted And the author says, look, God is not unjust. He doesn't forget. Your work and the love that you continue to show will be rewarded. You can count on it. You can take that to the bank. So be diligent to the end to make your hope sure. What does that mean? Does that mean that you're earning your salvation? No, but he's saying run to the end. Run the race all the way to the finish line. Don't pull up with like 20 yards left. You're like, oh, I'm tired. No, just keep running hard the whole way through because that shows that Christ is in you, that he has saved you, and he is in you working through you. It shows that to you. It gives you confidence in your salvation, but it also shows it to other people around you. And they see you and they say, wow, Christ is real. I see him working through this person. And because that person endures, I can endure. Because that person is diligent, I can be diligent. Don't be lazy. Imitate people like Uriah, who through faith and perseverance pushed on and inherited eternal life. So how does this apply to us? Some quick application points here. And they're in your notes if you want to look there. 
on the paper or the app. First point here is that I think physical lethargy leads to spiritual lethargy. There's a correlation there. If you are not physically disciplined and alert, you generally will not be spiritually disciplined and alert. C.S. Lewis has a really good article on this, and uh, he talks about why Christians in the old days, the ancient Christians used to kneel in prayer, and they would bow, and they would do things like that. And he, in, in our modern view, that's very archaic, but C.S. Lewis said that the ancients understood that there's this connection between the physical and the spiritual, and your physical posture affects your spiritual posture. And so if you're, if you're trying to pray, you're laying on the couch, and you're watching TV, and you're half asleep, and you're like, oh, I should be praying. Dear Jesus, bless the VBS. Amen. Like, that's not very effective. Your, your prayer is spiritually lethargic because your body is physically lethargic. Second, sloth is often gradual and subtle. I'm sure that David did not view himself as lazy. I think if you had gone up to him and said, hey, I think you're kind of lazy, he would have been pretty ticked. Not a wise idea to do that to a king anyway. I doubt that he planned in his mind that he was going to stop going out to war and start taking five-hour naps instead. He probably thought that after all his hard work, all his sacrifice, he deserved a little rest. He deserved to enjoy the comforts of life for a while. But slowly, without realizing it, comfort became his God. And the same thing can happen to us very easily. We live in an age where we have more comforts than King David did probably. It's very easy to slip into that. Third, be alert during seasons of sloth. Seasons of sloth. Seasons of life when it's very easy to slip into sloth. The first season I can think of is after hard times. Man, you've been through a hard time. You've, maybe it's suffering. Maybe you've just been persevering through something tough. And you've been pushing through and you've been working hard and you've been faithful to God. And finally, now that season is kind of over. That hard time is kind of over. And you're like, oh, thank God. I got what I was wanting or, I, or whatever, right? The kids are no longer two. And like, I can relax a little bit. Whatever that hard season is, you're, you're through it. And you're thinking, I deserve to enjoy myself. Yeah, you, you, you do need to rest. But boy, it's real easy to use that as just an excuse now to just kind of slip into sloth. Another season is after accomplishing or giving up on a major goal. You have a goal in life and you're, you're pushing and you're really focused on it. And you accomplish that goal and you're like, yeah! Or maybe you give up on that goal and you're like, I, the, the, what, for whatever reason, the door is closed. I can't break through. And you've given up and now the question is, what now? What now? And there's, a, there's a lack of purpose all of a sudden. After finishing the goal or not finishing it, but there's this lack of purpose. And it's, it's fine to take a break, take a rest, and then refocus on something else, but it's really easy to just be like, I'm done. I'm checking out, man. There's a lot of good stuff on TV. I don't really need to do anything else. Another season is when everything seems to be going well, seems to be routine, and you're just, it seems like God is pleased you, with you, seems like other people are pleased with you, and th- you're just coasting. You're, 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 you're floating on an inner tube down this really gentle river, and you're, you're just, it's comfy. Man, you don't want to change. When you get into that place, when things are good and they're routine, it's really hard to change. It's really, it's really hard to want to do something hard when you're really comfortable and when things are really routine and you're coasting down the river. Why rock the boat, man? And people are like, hey, we need to do this. I think God is calling us to do this. And you're like, oh, I'm really comfortable sitting on my inner tube. Why would I do that? It's hard. 
I'm not, I mean, I'm, I am making fun of that, but I understand for myself it's hard to change when you're comfy. And then the fourth season, I think, is as you age. And I know many of you think I'm very young, but I'm starting to experience this. As you age. Youth, youthful sloth is very obvious. It's very stereotypical, generally. And I was, I was this way sometimes as a youth. Very stereotypical. Youthful sloth is, oh, I can't get up. I, you know, you're in college, and you're like, I can't get up for class. I'm too sleepy. And then, you know, youthful sloth is, I'm not going to study because I'm too, you know, I'm too lazy to study. And then it's, uh, I'm not going to go get a job. I'm just going to live in the basement of my parents' house and play video games. Right? That's kind of the stereotypical. I know not all youth are that way. But that's, it's very obvious, generally, when youth are slothful. But for older people, as you, as you approach, as you start to get older, you start to approach middle age and then beyond that, I think sloth is, tends to be more subtle, harder to recognize at first. Because you say things like, man, I'm tired. I've been really faithful in serving God, but I'm tired. Let someone else serve God for a while. I need a break. I've served faithfully my whole life. Now I just need a rest. And I get that. And yes, there's, there's a time for that, for rest. But there's no retirement in the kingdom of God. You can retire from your job, absolutely, but you don't get to retire from the kingdom of God. There's always ways to serve that God is calling you to do. Yes, take a rest when you need a rest, but don't check out because there's still things to do. There's always ways to serve in your personal life. There's ways here at church. We have our open campaign. There's always ways God is calling us to serve. Fourth, regularly examine yourself for symptoms of sloth, just like you would for physical illness. Symptoms of sloth. And one of the first symptoms is an unwillingness to do hard things that you're called to do. That could be physical. You, you just don't want to do hard work. You start slacking at your job. You, you start slacking and serving and volunteering. It could be relational. Where you, just, you start slacking and reaching out. You know you should reach out when you go out on the plaza. You know you should go talk to new people and guests. But you're like, uh, I, I've done that for a long time. I'm tired. I deserve to just kind of hang out with my group of friends. That's a lot more comfy. Sloth. That's what it is. It's comfy and it's sloth. Or when you're like, I don't want to confront that person in my life who I know they're close to me and they're doing it and I need to, I should confront them in love, but I don't want to. That's hard. And so you come up with a religious excuse like, well, God will convict them. I'll just pray for them. And, you know, I don't want to intrude and all that kind of stuff. It's sloth. That's what it is. You're just being lazy. And then spiritual, where you start, you start, not being as motivated to read your Bible, to pray. Sloth. Another symptom is a lack of physical discipline in your life where you start indulging physical appetites instead. So, and I'm going to be maybe controversial here, but I'm going to say a lack of physical fitness is a sign of sloth. And I'm, you know, Dr. Heal yourself, right? I, I, I get it. I'm a candidate for this as well. But look, a lack of physical fitness is often, not always, if there's medical issue, biological issue, but often it can be a sign of sloth. Why? Because we're just not staying diligent about it. Paul says, look, physical training is of some value, but spiritual training holds value for this life and the next, but there's a connection here. Physical training does have some value. An inability, and I should really say an unwillingness, to fast and to control your diet. Now again, I get it, there's medical issues where you can't do that, but for many of us, just generally, if you're not willing to fast, and I'm in this boat, I hate fasting, I'll just be honest, I hate it. It's my least favorite spiritual discipline. But if you're unwilling to do it, it's sloth. 
If you're unwilling to control your diet, that's sloth. An increasing consumption of entertainment, especially media entertainment, as there's a decreasing time with God, quality time with God and family and friends, that's a sign, that's a pretty big symptom of sloth. Pretty obvious symptom of sloth. As your media entertainment consumption goes up, your quality time with God and other people goes down, that's sloth. And then fourth, unhealthy sleep patterns. Could be a sign of sloth. Too much sleep, obviously. You're sleeping 12 hours a day, that's that's sloth. Or, Or less even. But also, I think maybe this is more subtle, undisciplined sleep patterns where you're, you're, you're not maintaining a healthy bedtime. And so you're going to bed late, really late, because you can't seem to get yourself in bed on time. And the next day you're like, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I'm so tired. I can barely get to work. And you're like, read my Bible in the morning? I can barely get up in time just to get to work. And then you're at work and you're like, oh, reach out to coworkers? I can barely do what I'm, just, just do basic stuff, right? That's, that's sloth. It's sloth because you weren't disciplined to go to bed on time, so now you don't have the ability, the energy to reach out to people around you and to spend time with God during the day. And then fifth, spiritual complacency. A stupor spiritually. There's a stupor on you where you just you don't have zeal for God. You don't have passion for God. You don't have love for people. You hear about broken people. You hear about lost people, and you're like, whatever. I don't know. It's spiritual sloth. Spiritual laziness. Fifth, Guard yourself. This is the positive element now. Guard yourself from sloth. And there's two ways I put it here. By establishing routines of faithfulness. Daily times. Daily disciplines. Daily times of reading Scripture and praying. Weekly times of fasting, service, accountability, exercise, corporate worship, and other things like that. Those are disciplines that you can incorporate that will help you not fall and slide gradually into sloth. Know where you have a tendency to be undisciplined. You have a tendency to be slothful and set up disciplines in those areas. And then second, guard yourself by seeing your life within the bigger mission of the kingdom of God. Okay, you are not just, you are not just an employee. You're not just a father a wife, a grandmother, a retiree. That is not what defines you. What defines you is that you are a human being made in God's image who has now been called to be an ambassador and a soldier of Jesus Christ until he calls you home. That is your mission. That mission does not end until your life on earth ends. As long as you got breath, that's your mission. And as you keep that in mind and you set up disciplines, it can help you not to slide into sloth. Let's pray.